We are blessed this morning to have as our special guest uh, the Reverend Ben Daniel, who is a pastor at Foothill Presbyterian Church in San Jose. And uh, some of you may have heard him on NPR. He has been a guest periodically there to speak on the topic that he's actually going to speak on today. Uh, Not only in worship as he's preaching uh, this morning, but also afterward as he leads a seminar. Uh, He has just written a book, not just, it's probably been out for a little while. Since March. Oh, wow, just written a book, The Truth About Islam. The Search for Truth About Islam. He grew up in Mendocino. He uh, actually has been pastoring the church in San Jose for the last 16 years. He lives there with his wife and his three children, 11, 9, and 7. Oh, 8. Okay, well, I'm trying. (laughs) I'm close. But anyway, welcome, Ben Daniel. Really glad that you're here with us. Yeah. Thank you. It is good to be here. Will you please join me in prayer? Surround us with your love, O God. Fill us with your spirit. Create in us new creations. And fill us to overflowing. As your word is read and proclaimed. Amen. I'm told I don't need this. Is that right? I invite you now to hear God's word as it comes to us from the gospel according to Matthew. Chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Listen to God's word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pastor Mary, for inviting me to come and preach here at San Carlos. It's no small thing to be invited to come preach about the Trinity in a church called Trinity. Your trust in me humbles me, and I I think that's a good thing. This sermon is actually only the second sermon I have preached all summer because I'm on sabbatical right now. And during my sabbatical, I've been indulging one of my fantasies by pretending that I am a writer instead of a pastor, which has been fun. But I do miss preaching. So thank you for the opportunity to climb back into a pulpit. My sabbatical has been most welcome in part because um, I serve a congregation in a presbytery that is coming apart, the presbytery, not the church, the presbytery is coming apart over our denomination's decision to allow for the ordination of gay men and lesbians to serve in leadership capacities in the church. Last I heard, nine of our 42 congregations have begun the process of leaving the denomination. And that's complicated because, as you may know, in the Presbyterian church, presbyteries own all of the church property. And I happen to be the chair of the presbytery committee that is in charge of writing and of interpreting the rules that govern the presbytery. And for the most part, That is a refreshingly boring job. (laughs) But now, for the last 
two years, we've been trying to come up with rules to govern the process of churches leaving the denomination. And it, it took us three tries to come up with a set of rules that could pass the Presbyterian. Now that we've arrived at those rules, no one can agree on how to interpret the rules. It's a mess. And one of the things that we're doing in our presbytery to try to make things go more smoothly is we're having training events for presbytery folks and for members of the congregations who are planning on leaving so that the negotiations for leaving can perhaps move along with fewer hitches. And before I left on sabbatical, I was in charge of organizing the first two of these training sessions. And I knew there would be tension at these meetings because we were going to be talking about theology and human sexuality and huge sums of money. So I provided a meal for the participants, hoping that table fellowship would put a little grease in the cogs of our sociability. And in lieu of saying grace before the meal, I invited the participants to sing the doxology. Because really, what's more Presbyterian than the doxology? And what's more Presbyterian than a hymn set to a tune that was written by the director of music at John Calvin's church in Geneva. But as soon as the group started singing the doxology, I realized that I had made a mistake. I'd forgotten that Presbyterians sing different versions of the doxology. Right? We all start in unison. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Good. But things start to get confused after that because, because uh, a lot of Presbyterians, especially those of us who are more progressive, understand that God does not have a Y chromosome. And so we're a little uncomfortable using masculine pronouns for God, which means that in the second part of the doxology, things get a little fractured. Some of us sing, praise him all creatures here below, praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. But other people say, praise God, all creatures here below. Praise God above, ye heavenly hosts. And then it gets really bad when we start singing the names of the Trinity. Half the people sing, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But those uncomfortable with patriarchal words for the divine have several ways of singing the Trinity. Some say Creator, Friend, and Holy Ghost. Some say Creator, Christ, and Holy Ghost. Some say Creator, Jesus, Holy Ghost. And that's what happened at our training events. When we tried to sing the one song everybody knows and loves, we fell apart at the Trinity and singing about what may be the most important Christian belief. We couldn't sing the same words. But then, then something amazing happened. Most of the people in the room were singers. And after singing about the unity, about the Trinity, when we stopped singing about the Trinity, we sang amen in harmony. We didn't end in unison, but we brought our differences together so that they made a rich and beautiful chord. It ended up being wonderful. And I've been singing, I've been thinking about singing the doxology with Presbyterians well on sabbatical. And I've come to believe that the way Presbyterians sing the doxology is actually a faithful expression 
of what Jesus asks us to do in the words that I read to you from the Gospel of Matthew this morning. This passage, what we call the Great Commission, it is a passage that I used to believe was written for people who are confident in their faith, so confident that they're willing to go out into all the world making disciples of all nations, so confident that they are eager to move to some God-forsaken rainforest to baptize pre-modern people and to teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. In other words, for many years, I thought that this was not a passage for someone like me. I'm a doubter. And when the 49ers are having a good season, heck, when they're having a halfway decent season, I cannot get the Presbyterians from my own congregation to come and listen while I preach the gospel on Sunday mornings. Dearly beloved, these people have TiVo. I can't imagine how hopeless I would be preaching to the nations. But a careful reading of the Great Commission suggests that this is not just a passage for those who possess a confident faith. Because there is a paradox in Jesus' final words in Matthew. The passage starts with confidence. You know, go out and make disciples of all nations. You have to be confident in your faith to do that. And later Jesus asks us to teach those new disciples to obey everything that he has commanded And that also requires certainty of belief. But that's only half the commission. The other two lines, the second and the fourth lines, speak of mystery. We're to baptize those disciples we've made in the name of the Trinitarian God. And we're to remember and to be be comforted by Jesus' abiding presence. This requires a great deal of doctrinal flexibility. After all, how God can be Trinitarian, one and three at the same time, and how Jesus can remain with us, a human who also is God, these are questions that no one can answer. These are matters that speak to the deep and unknowable mysteries of faith. Now, over the years, Christians have attempted to come up with explanations for the mysteries of the Trinity and the Incarnation. You know, 300 years after Jesus spoke these words, the church finally arrived at a set of official doctrines about the Trinity and about the Incarnation, these beliefs that define what it means to be orthodox or, or, or correctly believing Christians. But, but the official doctrines of the church only describe God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit They describe Jesus as fully human and fully divine. They do not explain how such beliefs can be possible. And they don't explain why they're possible because they cannot explain what, in the end, is a mystery beyond explanation. So we are to go out with confidence, to make disciples, to baptize those disciples into a mystery. We're to teach with certainty taking comfort in something that cannot be explained or fully known. It is a paradox, very much like the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation themselves. Now, for centuries, Christians have read this passage from Matthew, 
And they have been instructed and they have been inspired by the bits that require doctrinal certainty. And I wonder if perhaps more of us might be able to read this passage and be instructed and inspired by the parts that invite us to embrace mystery. Specifically, I wonder if in our encounters with people of other faiths, we might be as willing to be guided by mystery as we are by certainty. And I'm particularly interested in how we might allow the mystery of the Trinity to guide us as we relate to our neighbors and family members and coworkers and fellow human beings whose spiritual paths lie outside the Christian tradition. I know that some of you have been reading Brian McLaren's most recent book called Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? In that book, Brian McLaren presents the doctrine of the Trinity as a starting place for interfaith dialogue by appealing to how many Eastern Orthodox Christians have understood the Trinity. It's an understanding in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are made one God because of their perfect love for one another. Their relationships are so strong that there becomes no space between the three. The Trinity sings in harmony and in unity at, and in unison at the same time because of their deep and abiding love. For McLaren, this way of understanding the Trinity be, becomes an inspiration. Just as God loves God with unifying love, so we should do our best to love others with a unifying love. It's a divine calling that extends to us without exception. We're, we're to love Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists and animists and atheists and anyone else with a love that binds us to each other. To love in this way is a godly, indeed a Trinitarian thing. And I, I'm attracted to Brian McLaren's use of the Trinity as a way to inspire positive relationships between Christians and people of other faiths. I, I, I like the idea of God loving God's self in a way that is both uniting and inspiring. But as good as it is, and, and I think Brian McLaren would agree with me on this, as good as his understanding of the Trinity is, I hope you will not think of it as the last word on the Trinity. Because there can be no last word on the Trinity. Even with helpful ways to think about the Trinity, the Trinity remains a mystery. And I believe that's how God wants it. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is clear on this. Humans cannot see or understand God in a complete way. And the doctrine of the Trinity, which was developed a couple of hundred years after the Bible was written, the doctrine of the Trinity confirms this tradition. We cannot know God completely. Here's what we believe. We believe God is a mystery. To be sure, something of who God is was revealed in the person of Jesus. We know about God through the Scriptures and by observing God's work in the world. But however much we know about God, humans must remember that we have hardly scratched the surface of God's identity. The doctrine of the Trinity, a belief that 
one is three and three is one, this doctrine is a reminder of the great divine mystery. And as such, the doctrine of the Trinity should instill in us a good bit of humility and maybe even a sense of humor. Because really, the doctrine of the Trinity is a belief that makes no sense. The doctrine of the Trinity is irrational, self-contradictory, mysterious, and that is what makes it so beautiful. And what I hope is that the paradox inherent in the Great Commission, this idea that we're to go out with confidence to proclaim the mysteries of the Trinity and the Incarnation, I hope this paradox will make us humble when we find ourselves in the company of those whose beliefs differ from ours. I hope the mysteries of our faith will remind us that we don't know as much as we think we know. And I pray that this God-given humility will allow all of our differences to resolve into a harmonious amen. Because, dearly beloved, there needs to be more harmony. Twelve years ago, after 9-11, I started... I started to get worried about the Islamophobia that was creeping into America's public discourse. It is a fear of and a hatred of Muslims that unfortunately has only grown in the years since those fateful attacks. And so I started trying to get to know Muslims. And then I started trying to learn about Islam and I started writing about Islam. And now I've written a book about Islam And it has been an amazing journey. And it's a journey that I recommend you also take time. I recommend this journey for you also. I recommend that you take time to learn about Islam. And please go get to know your neighbors who are Muslims. And if your experience is anything like mine, then you will make wonderful friends. And you will eat incredible food. And the world will become a more beautiful and a less fearful place. But none of that will happen unless you love your Muslim neighbors, as Brian McLaren suggests, with a unifying Trinitarian love. And you must be humble. You cannot swagger into a friendship with a Muslim or with anyone else. Interfaith relationships cannot be built upon Christians telling everyone else how much better Christianity is than whatever they happen to believe. Nor should we say such things. After all, we believe in the Trinity. We shouldn't take ourselves so seriously. And I know that what I'm saying about living in faithful humility with people of different faiths or no faith at all It may seem to run contrary to the words and to the spirit of the Great Commission. But I'm not suggesting that we discontinue the work of evangelism or of telling anyone willing to listen what's wonderful and beautiful and joyful uh, in, in the gospel. I'm just saying that our evangelism should be infused with a humility appropriate to those who believe in the Trinity. And we must do everything we do guided and motivated by unifying Trinitarian love. We must share the good news as we know it and then listen as others tell us what's wonderful and beautiful about whatever it is they happen to believe. 
And then we must drink a toast to each other's good health and get down to the urgent work of making the world a better place. And when in our interactions with those who think and believe differently than we do, when we practice our faith with the love and the humility that befits those who believe in the Trinity, then we have indeed already begun the work of making the world a better place. For when we practice our faith with humility and love, we are doing our part to rescue the world from toxic religion. After all, which Christian will place a pipe bomb in an abortion clinic while saying, I could be wrong? And which Christian will support the demonizing and scapegoating of Muslims after saying, you know what, maybe I don't know everything there is to know about Islam? Which Christian will remain silent in the face of anti-Semitism who has said, I've read a bit of history, and more often than not, the church has failed to be Christ-like in its relationship with Jews? And which Christian will be unmoved by suffering and injustice and inequality and violence who has said, I cannot pretend that I deserve the comfort and privilege and peace and joy that I know, for every human is a child of God. Every human is equally deserving of joy and well-being. My friends, let us practice our faith with humility and love. And now, because we're Presbyterians, you and I, I'd like to end the sermon where it began with a quick word about the theological divisions that are rending our denomination, the denomination I love, into these divisions which have sent me with such urgency into the warm embrace of sabbatical. I have absolutely no idea what any of you thinks about these issues. You may, like me, be someone who thinks that the inclusion of gays and lesbians is long overdue. You may not think that. I haven't talked to your pastor about it. I haven't talked to any of you about it. But even as you consider reaching out to those of other faiths, even as you love non-Christians with a unifying and Trinitarian love, even as you respect the Trinitarian mystery by embracing a spirit of humility in your interfaith relationships, my plea to you is this. Save some of that love and humility for your fellow Presbyterians. Dare to sing in unity when you agree and in harmony when you don't see eye to eye. For we Presbyterians are a people soar in need of healing. And you, dearly beloved, can be part of that healing. Now, let us practice a unifying Trinitarian love. Let us embrace the mysteries of our faith with and humility appropriate for those who know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And may that love and humility be may that love and humility be joined to a bold proclamation so that the world truly will be a better place. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Amen.